Rethinking Leadership podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature, and in this podcast, I interview leaders on their experiences of leading change, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. I'm interested in exploring how we lead disruptive change in a way that has a positive benefit for employees, business, and society. In other words, how do we be more human and relational in our leadership and make a difference? This week's guest has some great tips on leading teams in a more collaborative and relational way. More on that in a moment, but if you'd like more information on leading teams through fast-paced change, you can download a report from my website at www.jude.team. Phil Elston is Operations Director of Brompton Bicycle and is responsible for leading the manufacturing organisation in the production of the famous Brompton Bicycles. Phil joined the company because his values were aligned and he felt able to express himself. He talks about the importance of being driven, not at not being at the expense of having joy and fun, and seeing a team as an organism. Phil has a special way of bringing his team together called Rum and Coke that has transformed the relationships and results. Have a listen. Hi, Phil. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Jude. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Phil Elston. I'm the Operations Director at Brompton Bicycle. Okay. So what does, for those who don't know what an Ops Director does, what does, what does your job entail at Brompton particularly? It's pretty much summed up in... Uh, leading the manufacturing organization in producing amazing bikes for our fantastic customers. And what made you, what, what appealed to you about joining Brompton? I really like working in organizations that have ownership of design as well as manufacture. Um, and being, being in manufacturing for 20 years, I've seen the benefits of being able to create that feedback loop with the product design and development team. Mm -hmm. Um, My leadership style felt very aligned to the values of the organization. um, And that showed itself very early on in the interview stages and in the research I did about uh, about Brompton. And I felt I could really express who I am as a leader here and stay very true to who I I want to be um, and who I like being. As, a, as an organisational leader. So, so who is that? Like, what, how would you describe yourself as a leader? I like having fun. <laughs> I like, it, you know, I think like anybody who spends 50 hours or 40 hours a week doing something that they don't enjoy needs to really, really question why they're doing it. Mm. Um, and you can have a really, really perceived mundane job, but actually if the people around you are having fun, and the way that you do it is fun. You have a fun job. Mm-hmm. So in my position where my job is definitely not mundane and none of my team's jobs are mundane and it is challenging and it is exciting and there is pressure, it's almost like I, I just question why you'd not want to make it fun uh, and why you try and strip the opportunities for joy out of the job. Um, and that, that's kind of that's who I am as a, as a leader. I mean, that. I'm really driven, I'm really motivated, but I don't want to do that at the suppression of fun and joy. Mm. Um, I think people release themselves from uh, from overthinking when they're having fun, you know, and yeah. they say, 
more naturally. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, you know, I've I've done business operations roles as well, and and there is a tendency to think that it's data, it's analytics, it's it's as you say, it's manufacturing, it's design. It 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 can feel like, from an external perspective, that it's a very analytical job. And yet, the very first thing you've said is you like to have fun, which to me sounds much more creative. How do you balance? the two, the creativity with the analytical side of your brain? I think by having quite a, quite a diverse team, um, because one of my roles as a leader is not to do the deep diagnostics, it's to put, put some energy in, you know, put some stimulus in and set challenge. Um, and that kind of plays to some of my natural, my natural strengths. And if I can get people excited about where we're trying to go, as a business and feed from their visions and their their thoughts about where they could take the business then they naturally try and work out what's stopping us from getting there you know what's preventing that um so like most basically you put energy in and create a like a maybe an idea that people engage with ultimately everyone ends up working out how to get there and that's where data and analytics and um, investigation and trial and testing all come into play. Is they're all just expressions of how people are trying to chase that, you know, that sort of vision. And when you say you've got a diverse team, give give me some examples of like how how do you how do you lead a diver, a diverse team? I think celebrating. And being really, really honest with each other about those about those strengths and capabilities, um, and not expecting everyone to think in similar ways. Mm-hmm. You know, inviting challenge. You know, inviting feedback. Promoting debate. You know, and sometimes being slightly like polemic in conversation, just to kind of say, you know, just to demonstrate that it's okay to have differing opinions. Mm. Um, and you know, we, we do a lot of work with uh, Thomas International uh, using their PPA analysis. And that's one of the tools that as an organization, Brompton have been using for a while. Mm-hmm. And that, that helps kind of capture in a, like in a fairly tangible way, the differences in traits and characteristics. But, but even without that, I think it's fairly obvious those people who enjoy stopping thinking, analyzing, those people that are prepared to put, you know, more visionary, I don't know quite I'm going to get there, but I want to go there type mm. state in place. And just stepping back from the team and just kind of helping tease out at the point in time that you need that injection of mm. challenge or that injection of collaboration or um, stopping and thinking about whether it's right. And I think that's really my, my role is to kind of, see the team as a as an organism and try and make sure we're getting the, the, the best out of the uh, out of the group you know and make sure i don't just get a load of people like me um because otherwise i'm i definitely will fail or, or people that say yes to everything and and yet you know you make you make that sound really simple <laughs> that, that whole idea of collaborating and accepting differences and working working through those differences and yeah, I think that's the really tricky bit of working in a team is that ability to create a, a team where 
people feel safe to have those honest conversations to say, well, this is what I think, or this is what I feel, or this is what I want, mm. or this is what I don't want. And to then work through those that how, how do you encourage your team to, to feel safe enough to have those open conversations? About six months ago, we, uh, we had a bit of a shuffle in the team. We brought in a new uh, head of manufacturing and, uh, and about three or four months, well, I don't know, about longer than that, about six months prior to that, I'd brought in a head of facilities because I'd taken on responsibility for facilities as well. So in that six-month period, the team had changed quite a lot, and I recognised uh, and valued the change in that group. Um, and I really, I'm really, really conscious of the need for that, mm-hmm. Dana, to be a very kind of open, trusting one. So I put in a like a... a an hour a week where we just focused on the team. Um, I gave it a stupid name so that people knew that it wasn't something that they had to be worried about. We called it Rum and Coke, and that's the name of our leadership team now. Um, there's probably loads of ways you could analyze that and probably read way more into it than there actually is. Um, but the reality is that it was just an hour with the title of Rum and Coke. Um, and I just said, look, this is, the purpose of this time is for us to focus on how we as a team operate. Mm. Um, what are the things that we want to use this time for? How do we want to go about doing that? And invited loads of thoughts. Um, I made it really clear it wasn't going to work on the business in a tactical way. It was going to work on the team and how we how we engage with the, with the business and each other. Um, and over kind of a couple of weeks of this rum and coke session, we kind of created a bit of a meeting agenda. And the start point was just focusing on the people. So the first thing we do is um, is do something called mind, body, and soul, which is a, like a really simple rating where um, we tell each other how we're feeling about how's our mind, how's our body, how's our soul, and and nice. it's just a really good vehicle <clears throat> just to spend a couple of minutes just expressing how you're walking into that room, mm. you know, um, because with your work mask on, sometimes people forget that there's a whole life outside of work that could you know that could be creating challenge or joy mm. for for people in your team and it's a good way of just putting something on the table and going you know I had, a, I had two hours sleep last night my kid was up they really ill um or uh, over the weekend I refereed a football match uh, for the first time in you know in two months because my knees were really painful but it felt really good and I really enjoyed it and it's, it's a really good chance to engage with the human mm. rather than uh, rather than the role so we start like that and then we work through a couple of you know maybe sort of business type discussions challenges and sort of like quite a free-flowing discussion about how we might want to go and fix that um working on it rather than in it mm-hmm. um we also kicked off what was really good fun um we kicked off a book club and one of the team took like the librarian role um and we all put together like a list of books that we'd read and one of the books that came out as a kind of a early contender for reading was uh, Patrick Lanciani's uh, Five Dysfunctions. So we worked through that book and then we sort of fed back what we'd learned from it, our takeaways, etc. And we recognised that actually we might want to use the five dysfunctions as, a, as like a, a development transition plan for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so we then spent most of May doing loads of work on trust. And just really opening up. So we spent, because Lloyd had joined us at the beginning of that period, 
um, as the head of manufacturing, um, we just put in a really, really kind of intense, like every Thursday afternoon, we'd go and do something, whether it was um, like drawing challenges, whether it was like a, uh, like a, a mystery tour around the factory, whether it was a, um, a cycle ride up the canal um, with challenges on the way or whatever it was, just to kind of really open up um, what each other kind of did, who they were, what they were like as a child, and really build that trust so you got to understand people at a very like human level and, mm. and that really teased out lots and lots of sort of similarities or shared experiences and and in you know when you do that you have a conversation with someone you go oh right oh you you spent your life sailing and being in the scouts or whatever or you know you really interact agriculture or you, you know whatever it is mm. um i just think there's something really magical when you find those moments um, so we did that as a team. And then after we finished working through uh, that sort of exercise at the end of May, um, we looked at how we'd go about um, managing conflict and, and having good, healthy conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of, the, you know, one of the beauties of having a really diverse team is that even if it is not spoken, there is mental conflict in the group. And one of the nice things about finding ways of expressing that on the foundations of trust is that people like reduce frustration by being able to share their thoughts, their concerns, you know, and their just their ideas that they might feel too vulnerable to share if they don't think the Rubens got their back mm. um, or will value the contribution. So we uh, we then did some work using uh, Ken Scott's book, uh, Radical Candor, mm-hmm. um, and we just used that as a framework then to kind of help us through that next level so you know it was also just a really good excuse to read another good book to be honest um and and there are some really good book ones in the club um uh and we just started cascading that into our teams as well and just flowed that down so right we then ended up in a position where we trusted people because we understood them and we understood the value and the criticality of having open dialogue mm. um and the the value of conflict uh, if it's done from a position of sort of, of respect mm. um, and caring humanly about you know, the person that you're engaging with. Um, and that was, yeah, there were two really big breakthrough moments for us. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, for me, that sounds like really enlightened leadership in that you're spending, you know, you're, you're spending 40, 50 hours a week doing, doing the job and working collaboratively to do that, but actually putting aside an hour a week and sitting down together and saying what makes us brilliant together and where are we getting stuck and working through that together. Um, very few teams make the time to do that. What would, your, what would your advice be to those, perhaps somebody who's listening that would say, gosh, we're just too busy to do that. What would your advice be to them? Other than just do <laughs> it. <laughs> well, like, yes, just do it. But I think there are ways of just doing it. And if you just turn up one day and go, team, this is not working. We need to do something different and go off in that direction. I think there's a real risk that people will feel like, I don't know, I think they'll feel undermined or they'll feel mm. like they're doing something wrong. And they're not, mm. you know, uh, they just aren't doing things that could make the organisation or the team better in some way 
And I think the leadership responsibility is to identify that. That a nice way of doing it is to spot a really, really small opportunity, you know, and link it to a need to go and do something. Um, and and just talk with the team about the fact that you think they could, you know, they could operate better or sometimes just understand, you know, just have a session about what the people think is working really well and what they don't think is working well and try and teasing it into that because um, one of the first things that, you know, trying to create open communication, one of your first responsibilities as a leader in trying to create open communication, I feel, is showing that it's okay to be challenged, mm. um, showing that it's okay to get things wrong. Um, and I'm really, really comfortable with being challenged and I definitely get stuff wrong. Mm. So um, I think letting go of your ego, if you have one, and starting in that footing is probably quite a good way of getting things going. Linking it to things like a new customer, a change in strategic direction, um, a new starter or, or somebody leaving. You know, these are things that are going to be quite common with the amount of turnover that's going on in the work market at the moment. And um, that you just need something that creates that impetus. Mm. But you can make it yourself. You know, don't, don't just follow how I did it. Yeah. And what I'm, what I'm hearing with what you're speaking about is you're talking about what, I, what I'm hearing is you're fine-tuning and, and there's a real parallel here between, as an ops director, I'm guessing you're always fine-tuning process and whatever's going on in the business and fine-tuning how does the business operate. And you're also fine-tuning how do the people operate and cooperate and collaborate together as well. And actually, that's the real value is when you bring those two together, is you're fine-tuning the data and analytics and the process, but you're also fine-tuning the how it's managed and delivered as well. The the situation that we've been in at Brompton for the last two years has not been a fine-tuning one. It's been a heavy lifting one. The the demand for our brilliant, beautiful bikes and the needs for people to be able to move freely in cities um, mm. without relying on you know public transport and people's desire to use our bikes has been you know, really, really strong and that's created a great challenge for us to grow. And they're not fine-tuning, tweaking changes. They are mm-hmm. you know, fundamental re-evaluations of what we do, how we do it. Um, and, and as a consequence, when you're thinking about your team, it's okay to stop and go, you know, we, we need to do something really big. You know, we need to do something really important and freeing up that inner dialogue that people you know, restrain is a really big shift, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and it's created a, in a fairly short time a, a team dynamic that I'm really, really proud of. And the team get a lot of, um, they really see the value of it. Mm. And they really feel the value of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, I, and I'm I'm really surprised sometimes by the feedback that I get about how well the team works because it felt really natural to do. Um, mm. And I think, you know, as as a team, we're, we're really proud of the journey that we've been on over the last sort of six months. So forgive me for calling it fine-tuning. <laughs> no, no, I totally got that wrong. Time, yeah. but, but what I'm hearing is mammoth shifts in a small amount of time, both in people and process. Yeah, definitely. Um, and 
maybe if the team had been working together for a bit, for a bit longer, it would be more fine tuning. But I recognised that there was going to be a lot of change in the dynamic in the group and a lot of risk and threat if that wasn't managed really, really well. Mm. Um, and so I was also really conscious that I really, really needed to kind of find a way of the team working its way through that. Um, and that's what probably drove the bigger, you know, the bigger step. Yeah. What what led you here to to think about your team in this way? Because not many people do. I'm just really conscious of how I like being led mm-hmm. and how I like operating within a team. Um, most of my childhood, I played in team sports. I was in the Marine Cadets. I was in the Royal Marines Reserves. And you build up a reliance right. on people around you. Mm-hmm. And you build up expect- expectations about how they're going to operate and behave. Um, you know, playing, you know, playing rugby when I was younger, you, know, you all you realise that there's a part to play and you can't do anything on your own, really, anywhere near as effectively as you can as part of a, an organism. Um, and therefore, I've kind of always viewed it through that prism, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, when an organism's under threat, it needs to evolve and change and grow. Um, and sometimes you've got to make that quite a quick transition. And do you think do you think the work that you did in the Marines then was the translation of team sport into work, into a work environment, and a work and a work team? Because lots of people play sport, but then they don't collaborate well in their work teams. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I think. I think I learned very different lessons about the requirements of a situation and how the team operates. Um, there's always really, there's always really significant trust um, needed for the for a team to be effective. I think one of the things I took from the from like the, the military um, aspect was more around team structure um, and the need for real clarity about roles mm-hmm. and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it yeah, translates into sport, translates into pretty much any mm-hmm. any dynamic where you've got two people working together you know the clearer you are about who does what the freer you are to kind of express that mm. so um i think the the military insight was a lucky one because i think it just showed me something very different and the jeopardy or the potential jeopardy is far higher than losing a rugby game um i never served actively um but um but it when you're putting yourself in the situations where you think it could be in a battlefield, then yeah, I think the stakes are high enough that you really focus and and learn what real trust looks like. You know? mm. Do you think that we we then create our safety through that having that open dialogue and those level by by spending the time developing those levels of trust? I, I think you end up feeling safer because you feel like people get you. Mm. and that they understand why you might feel like that. So being able to say, I'm really nervous about the, what this new machine that's coming in, it, yeah, at the most literal level, is just you saying that there's a concern. When, when you say that in a group of people who understand you and your wiring, they probably get a more deeper 
they get a deeper insight as to why you might be saying that, you know, how they need to kind of help you sort of work through that or mm. the motivations for saying it. I think that's the difference, you know, in, in, a, in a room of strangers, the, the, same, the word is the same, but what people are able to process from that and understand from that are, are radically different. So does that help you in terms of leading your team, having a better understanding of what makes each person tick and what makes you tick? Do, do you think that helps you guide each other and collaborate? Without a doubt it does. Mm. Um, but I think also the fact that we're really, really open to not understanding each other as well. Um, I think you, know, you don't have to get to the point where you know the birthdays of everybody's child and know you know know what the first infectious diseases that they caught well you know whatever whatever the kind of yeah that like the very factual insights are actually i think being humble enough to recognize that you don't know everything about someone mm. and being okay to say that and trusting that people who do the right stuff with that information um is probably the biggest it's probably the biggest benefit um and being prepared to really listen intensely. Yeah, there's something there's something here around um, how how do you be more curious about each other and mm. and 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 you use that word humility to the humility to know that actually we never know what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes or to be somebody else. We only know our own experience of our own leadership and our own life and and work. What I'm hearing from that is there's a desire to 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 sit with the discomfort of curiosity where actually most people are more comfortable with the known with the certainty um whereas ambiguity and uncertainty is often uncomfortable it, it is and i think another word to put into there is tension as well um mm. and ambiguity and uncertainty they they're great stimulus you know they're great reasons to go and be more inquisitive to go and ask questions um, and if you if you find ways of, of you know, identifying a situation and the you know, the uncertainty or the ambiguities around it in a you know like a positive way, then I think people are really ready to engage with it. If mm. if you do it as a <laughs> if you do the if you do the uncertainty as a negative thing. And it could be the same thing, you know. Um, then I think people's appetite for engaging it changes. Um, and so if they identify stuff versus you telling them stuff as well, I think that that changes people's desire to deal with it. Yeah. So how did you lead your team through the pandemic, knowing that for many people the pandemic, everybody's had a very different experience, and for some people it's been deeply traumatic. How have you? How has that shaped you as a leader? Um, I think that's a really, really hard question to answer it succinctly in as much as because of the complexities of leading you know, a fairly sort of wide skilled team, there are parts of the team that spend two thirds of their week every week working from home. There are parts of the organisation that we're in every day and I, I align myself to the parts that we're in every day because I felt that that was the most uncomfortable situation to be in. Um, that was my perception. Um, and you know, for anyone that was at risk or anyone that was uncertain or had family members that were 
you know, in any way vulnerable, then we cared personally about them and put their, you know, put their safety and their kind of considerations primary. Um, what became kind of increasingly um, known to us as a business and certainly to me and my team were the challenges of working from home as well um, and just having an, you know, not being in that situation. I've never really worked from home either. Um, so not knowing that and knowing what that felt like and the isolation that that causes mm. in the early days made me probably a bit naive to it, to be honest. I don't, don't think we led, I don't think I led that group of people as well as I could have done had I understood their situation um, better. And then when I started working from home, maybe like one day a fortnight, um, I found it really lonely and I found it really difficult to do what I what I did. And I had a family around me. And for some of our team who are kind of young and living on their own, mm-hmm. um, it was very difficult. So, you know, we've really focused on trying to rekindle that sort of team togetherness and team identity as people are, are coming back. And actually through even the even the kind of like the, the most sort of locked down periods of uh, of the pandemic we really encourage people to rotate so even if they're coming on site only one day a week um just to kind of feel the business you know feel the organization that they work for kind of feel for the pace and the intensity of work that was going on mm. um, so that when they went back home it was kind of lodged in their mind um and also and it keeps people like, engaged as well doesn't it because it's so easy when you're just you know when you're technologically disconnected you're physically disconnected it's very easy to start getting emotionally disconnected from the organisation. It, it, it really is. And, and for some people who haven't actually been in the business for that long prior to mm. um, lockdown really kicking in, they didn't really have a huge emotional bank to, to kind of lend from to, uh, to understand the business and the people that were, that were working within it. So, yeah, that was a real pressure. That was a challenge. Um, and a lot of the teams that worked remotely set up, um, you know, set up quizzes and presentations and sort of team events just to kind of keep that sort of team spirit alive. Mm. But it's no, it's no, um, uh, it's no substitute for being in a room with a group of people or operating yeah. next to them. That you just you can't quite replicate that. No, and I and I um, I personally really go ooh, at the idea of forced fun. <laughs> so, you yeah. know that whole idea of let's all get on a Zoom call and have some fun on a quiz. I'm like, no thanks. Um, so it's always it's always really tricky one, isn't it? Because everybody has a different style and different wants and needs of how they connect and. Yeah, uh, interestingly though, you put anyone in a pub and generally they'll have fun. Yeah. Um, Putting anyone on a bike and go for a little ride, um, they'll generally have fun. So I think that you know, even though being on a on a Zoom call feels a bit clinical, um, there are lots of other ways that you can try and get people engaged. Mm. It just it was just difficult, you know. I don't think there were some things that we found easier on Zoom or on Teams or whatever. Um, you know, so like like what? Fast, like, like we did some we did quite a lot of work on our drawings and our jigs and fixtures and and actually from a collaboration point of view the discipline that you have to have on a phone call or on a team's call with listening mm. you know 
and you can't have three conversations at once because there's only one microphone. So actually what it did do is create some better balance um, and it meant that you couldn't you couldn't have three dif different discussions with loads of distraction. You could really focus people in on the things that you really needed them to, to go and work on. Mm. And people could kind of doodle or sketch or something and then put it up and it became quite a, and there were some really good dynamic sessions that sped up, I think, some of our, you know, some of that project work by being online. And we probably, and we actually still do some of that work even now, even though we're in the office, sometimes we'll just work at our desk and we'll be like 20 meters away from somebody else that's on exactly the same call. Because actually as a medium, sometimes it works better. But then after that, we might go and have a meeting or a conversation about what worked, what didn't work. Yeah. Um, and have like the debrief and like the lessons learned type conversations. So you've got to kind of play to the strengths of each of those mediums, I think. That's interesting because what we hear from that is that the, the technical side of things can be done in a more clinical way online because it forces you to, to take it through a more logical step. But the human interaction piece, which is much more free flowing, is, is easier face to face. Generally, yeah, and, mm. and I think you know that if you can't do the if you can't do the face to face, you know, really committing time to someone who has to work remotely or is working remotely is really valued and appreciated. Mm. But it is it isn't quite the same, you know, it isn't quite the same. But um, but that's it, it, that's a really nice learning, yeah, it's a really mm. nice learning for us as, as a business and for me and my team for mm. sure. How much of your leadership style is yours and how much of it is Brompton culture? I think, well, I came in with a very, with a fairly clear identity as a leader. Um, and I'd been through probably two or three years of not quite being able to express who I was fully. So um, when the you know, when the role opened up at Brompton and I, and I was approached about it, I really saw it as an opportunity to really reconnect with who who I am. You know, internally I'm the same leader, but my my work mask um, didn't quite sort of didn't quite project that. Um, and I, I don't really think I have, I don't actually really have a work mask now. <laughs> it's just it's like at pure Android. It's like it's just me now which is great and it, it's really freeing um mm. and i can be far more authentic far more genuine um as a as a result of that and yeah, as a consequence i think my team uh, operate better because i'm uh, there's no different version of me it's mm. just just me and i think anyone who's been through uh, a situation where they've worked in a business that that the business's philosophy around leadership or fun or anything is is different. Not, I mean, don't mean like one or two degrees different, I mean, mm. but like 90 degrees different. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you, you feel really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you, you can't function in the ways that you want and you're having to second guess how that's something's going to be perceived. Um, and I never felt that from the day of walking through the door or even the point of interview, to be honest, that I wasn't going to be able to be who I, who I am. Mm. So 
I think my leadership style is me. Um, Brompton allows me to express that and has helped build it into my team's culture and it interacts very well with the organisation's uh, values. Mm, interesting. I mean, it's, I always think it's fascinating how the hardest thing to do is to be fully authentically yourself at work. And yet it's also the easiest thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always struck by that, that if, if the environment doesn't support that authenticity or your value set or, the, and, or people have this desire to be behind a mask, it takes so much energy to try and hold that work mask up that you, that you mm. talk about. And actually it's so much easier and freeing and so much more joyful when you can just be yourself. I, I, I like being myself because it, it is it takes less calories. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, puts, it means I can put more calories into other things. Um, <laughs> and also I look around my team of peers and the the chief group that I work uh, that I work for. And I genuinely feel like I operate best when I am just just me. Um, and I'd rather fall out with someone for being me than being misunderstood for not being, you know, yeah. <laughs> someone yeah. falling out with the perception of me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd rather and I'd rather at least have that um, as a downside. The upside being that if they like what I'm doing, they like it, and I know that that's me, and I can sustain it because there's no extra calories going into creating it it's mm. just who i am mm. um and i really encourage my team to be like that but appreciate how their how their kind of natural sort of approach to things interacts with other people's um and that's still a really big work in progress because you only really see all of those things when you've gone through a massive number of different types of challenges and um because different people fear different things mm -hmm. um, and the the landscape that we operate in now as a business is changing the, the challenges are going to be more complicated over this next year and I'm really conscious that I need to help the team continue to develop um, and shift their energies into those new sets of challenges without forgetting that they need to go still work on the team you know so don't become um, arrogant is probably too strong a word, but overly confident that they've nailed operating as a team. It needs maintenance. Um, we need to commit to it. And it's and, and we've almost come full circle there to, to where we started talking about. It's the it's the people who create the results. Um, and so it's important that we spend time developing ourselves, but also in relationship with, with the team as well. Um, one final question for you, Phil. What keeps you awake at night? Very little. Um, <laughs> I, I sleep really well. Um, sometimes sometimes my seven-year-old <laughs> will come and kick me in the ribs. Um, I, if I don't feel like I've given enough in the day, that's what keeps me up. If I feel like I've let my team down in some way, that's what keeps me up. Because mm. um, I'm... I, my role is to support my team and that's what creates the conflict with me if i don't feel like i've done that well mm. um other things are, are just life are just a 
for business. But if I feel like I failed my team, that really, that cuts me deep. Mm. That's a really cliche thing to say, isn't it? But genuinely, that's the only reason I don't go to sleep, is if I feel like that thing has happened. Yeah, and I I don't know that it is a cliched thing to, to, to say. I think it it's something that a lot of people is, is true for a lot of people, but I genuinely believe it coming from you. Um, you know, from what little conversation we've had today, when I hear you say that, I know that that's because you genuinely care about how you support your team and that that is a huge part of who you are as a leader. I, I think that's who that's the only thing you can be as a leader. I, I don't think you've got an option to be anything other than that, by definition. I think we're going to leave it there, Phil. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic talking to you. Likewise, Jude. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for the um, for, for the the walk through leadership that you've um, that you've driven with your great questions. It's been it's been really good fun. Good. Thank you. I loved hearing about Phil's leadership style and the way he encourages his team to be themselves. I particularly enjoyed his phrase, I like being myself because it takes less calories. Isn't that true? The ongoing and constant disruptive change that we're all experiencing often leads to an increase in fear and Phil's approach to helping his team navigate those fears is refreshing. If we can encourage people to be themselves and show up fully, we can resolve tension and differences of opinion more quickly before they build out of proportion. What are you currently concerned with? What are your team currently worried about? What would the authentic version of you think, say or do? I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Please share it with someone else so we can collectively inspire each other to rethink leadership in the world. If you'd like more information on leading teams through fast-paced change, you can download a report from www.jude.team. That's it for this week. I was your host, Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature. Until next week, keep leading and I'll be back soon with another interview on Rethinking Leadership.